We have been moving through the Old Testament promises concerning the one who was coming to discover something of his nature, something of uh, his mission, something of uh, his connection to us and how we might better understand and appreciate Christmas as we reflect upon um, the manger, as we reflect upon Bethlehem, as we reflect upon um, the, the, the gift of God to us through his son. It's important for us to, to get as a holistic a view of that as is possible. And uh, hopefully through looking at some of these promises concerning his first coming, we've been able to achieve that. Today we are going to be in Micah chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 2, uh, primarily Micah chapter 5, but uh, we'll be looking at uh, the fulfillment of the promise in Matthew 2 as well because uh, uh, there's some very important insights there as to exactly what's going on here um, in that passage. Today, as we look at Micah 5, we're looking at a passage that uh, is the passage that identifies the birthplace of the Messiah. It simply says in, in verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Micah there highlights the, the smallness of Bethlehem. The, the fact that it was in many ways inconsequential. It was a little farming community about 14 miles south of Jerusalem. Um, nothing of any significance, nothing of any note. Um, and that's a part of what Micah's getting at as he talks about the coming of the Messiah. Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, they both ministered and served at the same time. Um, Isaiah seems to have focused more on the royal court, the nobility, uh, and such in his sermons. Micah, being a farm boy himself, seems to have focused more on um, the, the, the commoner, the people out in the streets. But both of them are preaching the same message, essentially, in Jerusalem at the same time. And so the message we heard last week uh, from Isaiah chapter 7, with the judgment that's coming in, uh, because of Ahaz's faithlessness, is something that, that Micah would have picked up on and Micah would have furthered uh, in terms of his focus. And Micah is much more, um, for lack of a better way of putting this, he's much more judgmental of Jerusalem than Isaiah. He's much more um, God's judgment is upon the people because of their faithlessness, because of their lack of commitment. And God's judgment is upon the king because of his lack of trust and confidence in God. And so it's not surprising then that Micah, as he proclaims and as he preaches here, the coming of the Messiah, the one who would come, he moves the focus from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, from the hub of Israel's um, work and worship and royalty and commitments and all that to this little out-of-the-way place, highlighting, as we noted last week, God's judgment, but also God's grace, as we'll see. Because what we're going to discover as we look at Bethlehem as the place, the location, is that Jesus is in many ways a hidden treasure. 
Have you ever seen or heard those stories of, of people who come across something that um, um, was actually worth a lot? Uh, there was a show, I don't know if it's still on or not, but there was a show that was on PBS for a while. It was Antique Roadshow. You all remember that show? Where these people bring these, these old things to these experts, and they'd look at it, and they'd say, well, actually, what you have here is a 15th century, da 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 and it's worth $10 billion. And they're, ah! It was all very exciting. Uh, one, of, one of the stories that really stands out for me is, is a painting. This painting. Now, when I look at that painting, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I don't get all that excited. Okay? But um, a few years ago, a woman named Elizabeth Gibson was walking down the street in New York City. And she saw this painting next to a trash can. It was just leaning up there. And she thought... You know, that would look nice in my living room. I'm going to go ahead. You know, they've thrown it away. They don't care about it. They don't, they're not interested in it. I'm going to take that home. She took it home, and through a series of events uh, of it there in her home, she came to discover that it was actually the work of uh, a painter named Rufino Tamayo, and it was worth well over a million dollars. It had been in the trash. And yet, she found value in it in terms of her living room, and then there was even more value in that, given its famous origin. When I think of the manger, when I think of the, the situation, the circumstances surrounding Christ's coming, I think of Bethlehem. Like I said, a little out of the way. Nothing village. It wasn't even, what does Micah say about it here? You're too little to even be counted in the clan. When it comes time to, to count the clans of Judah, when it comes time to, to collect who, who the leaders are, okay, we're not even going to include you, Bethlehem, in that collection. You don't even get to, to, to represent, get a representation in the clan meetings. That's how small you are. That's how inconsequential you are. That's how overlooked you are. You are from village standing a little more than, than trash. You're just a place, a byway. We were thinking in terms of Texas, uh, this is a town that doesn't even have a dairy. Okay? You know, uh, doesn't even have a stoplight. It's just one of those crossroads that, yeah, there may be a sign there that says we're here, but other than that, there's just not anything there. That's Bethlehem. But here in this place, the Messiah is going to be born. And we see some truths about this hidden treasure that Jesus is. We see, number one, we see power veiled in weakness. It is a small, inconsequential, unimportant town. And yet, the creator of the universe is laying there in that manger. The one who, who made those animals that were around. The one who made the stars that the wise men would later follow. The one who created all that is laying there in a manger very appearance of weakness. Is there anything more helpless than a baby? 
you know, you, you think of, of babies and, and you know, Christmas is, is always one of those times when you really kind of get excited about babies and stuff like that. They, they can't even hold their heads up, right? You've you got to hold their head. That's how helpless they are. That was Jesus. He had to have his head supported by his mom, his dad, as they held him. He had to have his diaper changed. You know, ever think about that? The creator of the universe getting his diaper changed. But he wasn't just dependent upon them for, for physical realities. Much of his, his spiritual standing early on was very much dependent upon his parents. That's why we see them in the temple in Luke, you know, seven, eight days after his birth. Following what? The law of Moses. Keep making sure that he's being faithful to those things even before he's able to be faithful in those things. The appearance is that of weakness. The appearance is that of helplessness. And yet the reality is that he is the creator. He is the savior. He's already been introduced. He's already been identified as the one who will save his people from their sins. He's already been identified as the one who will lead us out of darkness. To those in darkness, a great, a great light has shined. The angels sing of his glory, his greatness, his majesty. How, the, how, how do you think they connected to this? I, I, I often wonder about characters in the stories and how they how they perceived it. The angels they they had praised the sun in heaven. They had been there around his throne, praising him, lifting up, acknowledging him. Holy, holy, holy. They had seen his power in the majesty. They were there at creation. They were there to, to see his power, his majesty, the, the mighty things he's done. And now they're called here to, on earth to, to praise him as, a, as his infant. That dichotomy is, is the, the very power of salvation. It's the very power of, of, of God's work. Because if he's not this helpless one, if he's not this baby, if he's not human, then Hebrews says what? We are without a high priest. We're without a connection. We're without a hope, a future. We don't have anybody who really understands or, or who has walked where we walk. We don't have a solid example. But if he's not God... If he's not the almighty creator, then he's unable to what? To actually deliver us from that sin. To bring us to the other side of this journey. Both his humanity and his divinity are, are necessary components to the salvation that he offers. And so we should not be surprised to see his power veiled in his weakness. We also see Grace veiled in correction. We talked last week that a big part of the reason Jesus had to be born in the manger, the, the, a big part of the reason Jesus was not born in Jerusalem uh, into royalty and, and, and in that sort of circumstance was Ahaz's sin. 
that Ahaz had failed to trust God, that Ahaz had failed to, to acknowledge God and to live for God and to, and to walk with God. And because of that, God said, you're under my judgment. The house of David is under my judgment. And that covenant I made with David and with Solomon has that, has that element that says what? If you're not faithful, if you don't walk in my ways, I'll judge you. And that's exactly what God has done with Ahaz, and he has proclaimed it through Isaiah, and he's now proclaiming it through Micah. It won't be Jerusalem. It won't be the royal palace. It won't be in power that he comes. It'll be in a manger, in a barn, in a place of animals. Let's leave it at that. There's a lot of debate as to exactly what where Jesus would have been born, what that would have looked like. Some propose it being a cave. Some propose it being a, a barn. Some propose it being a part of a house. There's all sorts of concepts out there. Regardless of which of those three it actually is, it's not a palace. That's because of God's judgment on sin. Jesus had to come in the way he did. The shadow of the cross is right there over the manger as he's laying in it. And so we sense that correction. We hear that correction. We, we identify that correction in the locale and in the status and the nature of Jesus coming. But embedded in that correction is God's grace. Because God did not mete out his punishment, did not, did not play out his punishment on someone else. He poured it out on himself. That's grace. God didn't say, I'm going to fix your situation by simply punishing you or your descendants. God said, I'm going to fix your situation by stepping into that line of descendants and taking that punishment on myself. It's the judge standing there and declaring the sentence and then coming down and saying, I'll accept the terms of that sentence. I'll do that on behalf of all the guilty parties here. The manger is grace. It is a picture of God's goodness to us. It is, a, it is a picture of God's grace to us, doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. It is also the eternity veiled in the temporal. I think a big part of what Mike is trying to get at by choosing Bethlehem, because he could have picked, really, in some respects, he could have picked any backwater town. He could have picked his own place of origin, Morsheth Gath. It's where Micah's from. It's, it itself is a little podunk farming community out in the middle of nowhere. But why did he pick Bethlehem? 
because that was the birthplace of David. And as we reflected on back when we were talking about the covenant and the, and the diverging paths of the covenant, covenantal promise that God made to David, we note that the prophets took special note of that divergence, how the descendants of David had a, con had a conditional promise. As long as you obey, you'll sit on the throne. But David himself had an unconditional promise that God was said, you will, there will always be one sitting on your throne. And so the one who's coming couldn't simply be a descendant of David. He had to be a new David. And Jesus is the only one of the descendants of David born in Bethlehem, where David himself was born. Jesus is the only one who embodies the nature of David being one after God's own heart because he possesses God's own heart. Jesus is the only one who, who reflects the realities of the eternal promise that one coming after David would always sit on the throne of Jerusalem. The temporal realities of the kingship were important to Israel. They were important to, to understanding God's blessing of the nation, to understanding God's blessing of his people. Even though the, the request for the king had been born out of sin and, and fear and lack of trust itself, God would use that to point them to who he is. Psalm 2, Psalm 110, point to the glory of God working through the monarchy, the power of the one who would, who would rule. And so we see God stepping into history, stepping into time to, to mold and to shape things according to his purpose through the monarchy. But we also see in this one who's here, the eternal one, who is forever on the throne of David, who is forever ruling with authority, with power, with majesty, with purpose. But I also want us to see an unveiling of sorts here. And that is that in this promise and in this fulfillment, we see transformation unveiled by presence. That is, we see that Jesus' presence changes everything. Let's look at the, the, the two passages here. Next slide. Is there another slide? Okay. <laughs> so on the left, you have the Micah passage. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. But notice how Matthew cites this passage. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Matthew doesn't directly quote Micah. The Septuagint doesn't read that way either. It's not, he's not borrowing from an, 
some sort of ancient form. He is doing what? Under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He is interpreting the prophecy, the promise, in light of Jesus and what Jesus accomplishes. And he says what? This little inconsequential town is no longer inconsequential because Jesus is there. Jesus' presence changes everything. In the book of Ezekiel, you have this, this series of reflections from the prophet. And it plays out in a number of ways with the movement of the glory of God, with the the Valley of Dry Bones, and so forth. And, and the, the simple truth that it expresses over and over again is where God is, where Yahweh is, there's life. And where Yahweh is not, there's death. And the very last words of Ezekiel are a promise that one day God is going to rename Jerusalem. And he's going to rename it Yahweh Shema which simply means Yahweh is there. That's what Jesus does. He's there, and because he's there, he brings life. And the inconsequential becomes consequential. The unimportant becomes important. The overlooked becomes the center of attention. In your own life, in your own experience. If you're like most people, you have had at least a period of time in your life where you felt insignificant, unimportant, overlooked, small. Where you felt like you just didn't matter. Some of you may have even gone to the lengths of Nobody would miss me if I were gone. And I hope if you're feeling that way today, if that's on your mind, because it often is during holiday seasons, for whatever reason, don't buy into that lie. Don't buy into that lie. You matter. And you don't matter because I said so. You don't matter because your mama or daddy said so. You matter because the creator of the universe said so. The one who made all that is. He sent his son to die on your behalf. That's how much he values you. That's how significant he views you as. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you. And even if you're a believer, you can still have those questions. You can have those doubts. You can have those fears. You can have that anxiety. Because too often we start to pull things back. The very things that God has shown us and taught us, we start to pull them back and, and, and question them, doubt them, reject them. Perhaps my favorite passage of Scripture is in Revelation 21. It's a passage I, I, I read at the graveside 
when I do a funeral. Because it's, it's such a powerful picture. Such a powerful picture of, of what Christ does, will do. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, behold, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will, what? Live with them. There's that presence. They will be his peoples. God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one sitting on the throne said, Look, behold, I make all things new. I make all things new. Our Creator loved us so much that He came to live in squalor. That He came to die on our behalf. But He didn't just do that and, and just leave it he did that, and in that power and in that presence, he brings transformation. That's where the real treasure is. That he makes us new. We may have overlooked him when he came the first time, but no one's going to overlook him when he comes the second. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we have the option, we have the choice of seeing the power of that, the value of that, the transforming work of that right now, or experience it in shame. Do you see the hidden treasure that Jesus is? Do you see the hidden treasure that he can make you through his presence? He invites you to relationship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. And God, as we look at the manger, pray that you help us to see the power that's present there. The grace that's present there. The transformation that's present there. God, I pray this morning if there's someone who's struggling with life, with their experience, with 
or circumstance or situation, that you'd speak to their hearts, that you'd draw them to yourself and that they would respond in faith. God, I pray if there's someone here who's never accepted you, never acknowledged you as their Savior and Lord, that today would be the day they would do that. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here today who might be struggling themselves, that they would find the renewal, the refreshment that you alone can bring. Whatever work it is you want to do here this morning, God, we ask that you do it as we surrender to you. In Christ's name I pray.